0: Welcome to the first ever live version of The Rev Up. I'm very excited to be doing this, uh, very excited to be sharing some uh, some concepts more from ourselves. Obviously, we always have so many great uh, guests on, on The Rev Up, the podcast. Uh, so this time, I'm excited to share some of uh, I suppose our thoughts and contents at Trust the Process, how we go about doing things, uh, but also give the opportunity to answer some questions. We'll have some people live asking questions. We've also got some uh, questions that some listeners have sent in. Uh, we will go through those uh, towards the end. The first portion of this uh, particular live podcast is that we are going to go through a couple of things. Uh, the first thing that I want to go through is. I really want to share with everybody what the, what the ideal growth engine looks like in terms of structure, in terms of the pieces that make it up. And I think this is a really important piece of context because um, the individual elements that make up how we grow across marketing, across sales, and even breaking down in within those elements across onboarding, across account management, uh, and those sorts of things, um, they all actually really need their own strategy. They need their own sometimes people. Um, but I think most importantly, they need their own uh, goals and KPIs. <laughs> and this is really the critical, the critical element. Um, when they have their own goals and KPIs, then we are not all working towards one set of KPIs or one metric and measurement that doesn't actually fit for what the other parts are. So I'll explain this a little bit more um, as we go through this process. Um, So let's get started. I'm just going to share my screen. So first and foremost, when we are creating a growth engine, it's important to think about the individual components uh, here at Trust the Process, what we talk about all the time is that the individual components, there's five of them ultimately. and you'll notice the absence of the words marketing or sales. Uh, and I think that's uh, you know that really is intentional um, because marketing even in itself is made up of a couple of pieces. And so let's talk about those first. Number one, right? We want to be trying to create demand, right? If we want to create demand, ultimately what we're trying to do is teach our audience how to win in the arena that our solution exists within, right? We want customers that come to us because they want to talk to us, not because they want to talk to somebody, you know, and in the trust the process context, uh, we want somebody that wants to talk to trust the process about offshoring. We don't want somebody necessarily that just wants to talk about offshoring, right? Because when they want to talk to us specifically because they've learnt from us, because um they trust us from uh from the content that we produce and from the conversations that we have, then we end up in a position where uh it's not super competitive, right? When we've created the demand for our solution, then the competition becomes significantly less. The um pressure on price becomes less because uh, you are now the trusted provider. The second part is that we have to be able to capture demand, right? If we've created demand, it has to be really easy for our customers to then uh, find us and opt in uh, and get to speak to the right person and make it to the right place. Um, you know, I'm sure everybody here has had a situation where they have personally gone to speak to a business with the intent. To buy or maybe very close to the intent to buy and it was just so hard to do business with them it was just so hard to buy from them it was not convenient they weren't fast they weren't effective and eventually you went actually i've changed my mind i'm not going to buy from them anymore right we have to make it super easy for to capture that demand um But also we don't create all of the demand for our product. So, you know, for a lot of businesses, a lot of businesses right now are living and growing exclusively off demand that other people have created. And so we have to have good ways to capture that demand as well. And that will mostly be things like um, search, you know, organic and paid, things like that. The third element is how do we convert it when this is ultimately your sales process, right? Um, Once they have opted in and they want to actually have a conversation with somebody, uh, how do we make sure that we have a sales process that maintains momentum, that helps them to get the certainty that they need and the connection that they need and the belief that they need in order to take action? And then how do we make it really easy for them to transact with us, right? How do we make it really obvious, really easy for them to get started and become a customer? Once they become a customer, how do we help them succeed? You know, we're not here doing deals. We're not here making sales, right? We're trying to help people ultimately. And so once they start with us, it shouldn't be a shock to them where it's like, wow, that sales process was amazing, but it's not what has actually ended up happening once I joined the company, (laughs) Uh, once I became a customer. They should have a great onboarding experience. They should have uh, people that are working alongside them to help them to succeed. We need to understand what their objectives are. We need to understand how they get a win, how they get to wins fast and help them to do that. And once we do that, what we'll find is that number five, expand the relationship actually becomes relatively easy. Right? But we do also still need to have a plan for it. How are we going to ascend our customers through uh, an Ascension product model or how are we going to expand on what they're already buying from us? Um, how are we going to seek referrals, how are we going to cross-sell, upsell, all those things, which, to be honest, they just, do they have the problem that the cross-sell um, solves? And we understand that by obviously having conversations with them and understanding our customers, right? So that's the model. And the reason why I think it's important to structure it this way is because, I mean, particularly between create demand and capture demand, what most businesses are doing is they're just going, how many leads have we generated, right and leads as a metric is generally a relatively bad one um, in for a couple of reasons <laughs> I think one of the main ones is that uh, if you only are measuring how many leads are you generating you tend to find over time that uh, your marketing team will hit that leads number but the quality of those leads will continue to decline <laughs> over time um and so we have to have good metrics in each of these areas you know if we're going to create demand how are we going to measure that because leads won't necessarily be a good way to be able to measure it uh and you also have to have a plan for how you're going to be able to see the effect that it has so we'll talk about that a little bit um but i think this is just a really important piece of context to understand how should we organize our growth engine how should we strategize about it what are the individual elements so i promise this is a uh, this is a and a session as well as a live podcast. Uh, we have a few people joining us live. I know we're going to do some Q&A at the end, but this is obviously an important first structure to be talking about, so I will just check. Do we have anybody that wants to ask any questions about this in particular?
1: Not right now. All good. <laughs>
2: cool
0: cool i appreciate the answer i appreciate the answer Uh, all right we're moving on we're moving on so the first the i suppose the first thing that's not about the structure that i uh that i want to talk about is how to build an audience through content Um, and i want to talk about this in in context of creating demand number one in the cycle. Uh, And I want to talk about this for two reasons. One is that um, I think this is an area that actually a lot of businesses really struggle with, right? They don't know how to create good content. They don't know what they should talk about. (laughs) They don't know who they should be talking to. Um, And so I want to talk through like, what is the structure that can be used? What's the process we can follow in order to be able to create content? I also want to talk about it because this is a journey at Trust the process that we've been going through. Um, I know everybody here uh, knows I'm I'm very honest about these things, and uh, like we've been doing this for about seven months now, and it's been uh, it's been a challenge. It's been a, a massive learning curve, uh, but it has also Uh, been achieving some results. (laughs) It's already started to become a really important channel for us um, as far as how we create demand and how we build actual convertible pipeline. And so I really just want to share some of the lessons that we've learned along the way in building this for ourselves uh, and now in also building it for some clients. We're only seven months in, so there's lots of lessons still to learn, but we've certainly... Learned a lot in the last seven months so uh, I think the important first question is why would you want to build an audience in the first place can't I just go and get leads from Google uh, or from Facebook just pay and someone will give me the leads right uh, well <laughs> it is an emerging world and uh, I suppose the 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 most important thing to always remember is that Facebook and Google etc are not charities and uh they always will want to have you pay more for what you're getting than you previously did that is a part of perpetual growth uh, and so you will always find that it is a constantly declining channel and i think it's fair to say that a lot of businesses are finding this at the moment uh two to one is the global average roas on adwords right there's been some, some, some surveys done. The global average across those surveys was a roughly two to one ROAS and declining from the previous uh, couple of years. $2.96 is the average cost per lead across um, AdWords as well. I've only given you some AdWords statistics here because I've got a particular AdWords bee in my bonnet lately. Uh, but $2.96 is the average CPL and that is increasing over the last couple of years uh, this won't be everybody's experience some people are doing ads really well and getting great return out of them uh, it is also something that we at trust the process are doing right uh, but it is something that if you are not constantly working on if you don't have the right expertise it's really hard to get a good return from if you're just Uh, a business owner that's mostly running your own marketing, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. And the last thing is, um, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but the way people are making decisions, particularly in B2B, has massively changed since COVID. I know sales trainers around the world have been saying this for 10, 15 years, that the world of sales has changed. The world of Um, decision-making in business has changed, particularly in the last couple of years. There are, particularly in B2B, there are more decision-makers than ever before. You know, in part, this is just accessibility. It used to be that you had to get two or three people together in a boardroom and present to them and et cetera, et cetera. Now, everyone just just joins on a Zoom, right? Even the person that's on holiday joins for this super important decision, right? Uh, The number of decision-makers involved has massively skyrocketed. Um But also, the way people are seeking out information i don 't actually think has changed. I just think we 've become much more aware of it. Um, people want to get advice, they want to learn, they want to get referrals, they want to talk to their connections, and they do a lot of this in places that we don 't track and so the reason I say no internet <laughs> is because a lot of these decisions, a lot of these referrals, a lot of these conversations are happening in places that attribution software is not picking up. And so it's really difficult for some businesses to figure out where their um, where their demand is coming from. And so we need to build an audience because people are making decisions in places that Facebook and Google and other places can't touch. Business networking communities, even things like facebook groups where someone says who should i go and speak to and they say you should go and speak to nat coco uh and uh shout out nat coco uh and uh and that person then googles nat coco and goes and finds her willow branding uh if you're looking for it
1: that's willows
0: with an s willows sorry with an s my bad
1: (laughs) (laughs) thanks for the shout out ben (laughs) no problem
0: uh or inflow or for flow Hugh, in dash flow dot au. Yep. Yeah, now it Jim what Jim, what's your uh what's your URL? Let's just do let's just do plugs now.
2: <laughs> All right. Uh org.
0: Fantastic. All right, everyone back on mute because we're getting an echo. Live recording. The fun Hugh. Hugh. It was always going to be you, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So um, somebody wants to do that, they Google you, and all your attribution is seeing is, is organic search, right? Or maybe they even know from this, they might, there might be direct traffic, not a Google search, right? Because now they know your URL. So we need to account for this. We want people coming to us. And the goal here is we want to beat Google, Right? We want to beat Google. We don't want them going uh, to Google and Googling outsourcing in the Philippines. We want them going to Google and Googling trust the process outsourcing. Right? We want to beat Google. We don't want Google to send them to whoever. We want them to send them to us. <clears throat> so, How do we build an audience? We need to build a content engine. If we're going to build a content engine, we need to have a good process for it. Uh, The best way that we have found to do this is with a bit of leverage. And this is certainly not a brand new idea. Uh, A lot of people would call this process a pillar, a pillar content strategy. I know uh, the world famous Gary Vaynerchuk talks about that all the time. Lots of people do, Uh, but the the concept is that we want to create leverage, right? And leverage where we can do the work once, and that one piece of main content creation work springs out a lot of pieces of content, right? So step one is we obviously have to build a content strategy. We have to understand what are we going to talk about, who are we going to talk to. I'll talk about those things in a second. The second thing we need to do is we then need to build a process that allows us to leverage that one piece of content that we make. And so the way it works for us is uh, we record a one hour to 90 minute video, something like what we're doing right now. How, uh, how meta is this? You guys are inside the matrix of our content engine. Um, capture video content. We edit that content and turn it into one good piece of video content that can also be a podcast it can be a number of things but one long-form piece of content that then gets converted into many pieces of content across many formats video uh, quotes thumbnails emails blogs etc from the same one piece of content Uh, write copy for how we're going to post it, where we're going to share it and share it for approval and then schedule it in a piece of scheduling software for distribution So Let's just quickly talk about the strategy element. Uh, The first thing we need to do is we need to have avatars. We need to understand who the heck are we talking to. I've given you an example here. This is something we try and help uh, our clients do at the start of building a content engine for them as well. Uh, First thing is avatars. Two parts to avatars. Demographics. What size of business are they? How many staff do they have? Where are they located? What's the job titles you want to talk to? Uh, What Kind of um, business are they? What are some elements that are really important for how you want to solve a problem? Uh, what industries? I think I already said that. All right. What are the demographics of this person that we want to talk to? And then what are their psychographics? What are their motivators? So we talk about it in two pieces, away from and towards. So an example of this particular person, their away from motivators might be. Uh, doing everything or managing everything very closely within their business they've hired some people but it's a bit hit and miss and sometimes seems like more trouble than it's worth uh can't afford the best people because they're not super big yet you know this is a 500 to 2 million dollar business and so they have to hire and train and manage very closely right um Etc. Cetera, et cetera what are the things that they don't they don't like what are the problems that they have and then what are they towards? They want. They want growth. They want time, freedom, lifestyle to be able to delegate effectively. And these sorts of things would be quite different if the demographics were larger. Let's say we were talking about a $10 million to $50 million business, right? A lot of what the person that we're going to be talking to is looking for is going to be different because they have some scale. They have people, right? They probably have a bit more defined work-life situation than your standard startup entrepreneur does right so away from and towards really important to understand your customer you have to know that first then you have to decide what are you going to talk to them about um, this is the structure for how I think about defining topics right how are you going to talk about them them being your customer <clears throat> and there's some elements within that? What's the journey that they typically go along uh, in their world? What's the core challenges that they face in in their from and to, where they are and where they're trying to go to? What are the roadblocks? What are the challenges? What is the gap between those two things? Is it something that's very close and easy to resolve? Is it something that's a long journey that requires a lot of mountain climbing and deep diving over a long period of time? What's the, what's the gap between the two things? What are paradigm shifts that they need to make, right? Then, how are you going to talk about you, right? Um, How did you earn it and learn it? Anybody that's ever done uh, training for presenting from stage will have heard the "earned it and learned it" uh, line. Um, Why? Which is essentially why are you somebody? What's your story? Why are you somebody that they should listen to about this topic? What's your superpower? Uh, How do you solve the problem? Uh, How should they go about deciding how to solve the problem, right? And then also, how are you going to talk about the market? What's happening in the market at large um, that you have insight on that people should be aware is coming, right? Uh, There's a great book by a guy named Oren Claff. I know you'll appreciate this, Hugh, uh, as a fellow avid reader, um, by Oren Claff called Pitch Anything, another one which is Oh, flip the script. almost forgot it for a second there. Uh, Where he talks about what's the winter's coming moment, right? Uh, A good Game of Thrones reference, winter's always coming. So what is the winter's coming moment across the horizon? What is the thing that actually is already happening and people are already taking advantage of that is happening now but most won't take advantage of for a while? The future is now. Um, And how do they get ahead and ride the wave? So these are just some of the areas that, that I think about when I'm trying to create topics that I wanna cover for that avatar. And essentially, when we pick one of these topics, so let's say we say the core challenges in the talk about them, the way you wanna extract that is you say, okay, what's this core topic, client challenge? What are the three pillars that make up that challenge? What are the three most important things about that challenge? And then what are the things you can do about those three different things? Or what are the three deep dive areas within those things? And if you think of it in these terms, it actually starts to become pretty easy to come up with hundreds of topics to talk about. You'll be surprised when you dig a bit deeper. This is just asking the why right? What's the client challenge? Okay. Why is that important? What are the elements that make it up? Okay. That's one element. Why is that important? What are the elements that make it up, right? What is that an example of is above. Um, What's an example of that is below. I don't know if anyone here's ever heard the chunking up, chunking down uh, concept. You write these concepts down Get all of these topics out of your head, right? You have to actually take some action and sit down and do some writing and go, here's all the things I want to talk about. But you'll be surprised if you think of it in these terms, or if you do it with somebody that knows how to do it, how quickly you can come up with 50 plus topics to talk about. And for most businesses, I would say you don't need 50. You probably only need 10 good ones uh, on rotation, and you'll be able to, to create a really solid content engine. Okay. Next step is capture the goodies. This is the really simple part. How are you going to record it? Um, we obviously record on Riverside. Um, we also are going live through LinkedIn Live, but we record through Riverside. You can record through Zoom. You can record through Google Meet. Um, the trick is just do it. Uh, the most important thing is you definitely need a good quality microphone. Uh, don't know if anyone can notice, but... Jim and I share a quality microphone. We'll not share it. We have the same one, which is the uh, Shure MV7. Uh, That is definitely my recommendation. I know, uh, Nat, you also do some podcasting. Have you got a a microphone recommendation?
1: This is just the normal everyday one, but, yeah, I've got the Shure SM7V as well.
0: Oh, nice. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, And then... It doesn't just have to be in podcast or video format, right? I have this other picture here because if you're speaking at events, capture it, right? If you run your own events, that's obviously easier. If you're speaking at other people's events, have your team come along and capture it. You know, if, if you've got a, a half-decent microphone and they even just capture it on, on a, a good iPhone camera, right? even just on a good iPhone camera, I promise you, you will be able to create content out of it. Let the editing do its magic, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. The video quality doesn't have to be perfect. You just got to capture. Start capturing constantly, even outside of that one pillar that you do. Then the trick is break it up into pieces. This famous quote from Archimedes who knows how accurate it is after all of this time uh, But give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it and I shall move the world We just need some leverage here And so this is what it kind of looks like in terms of a breakdown depending on who's doing it 90-minute video turns into a long-form video a long-form video audio a long-form text, right? So a podcast sorry a, uh, a YouTube video a podcast uh, a blog right? The long-form video turns into a whole bunch of one to three-minute snippets of that video, which turns into a whole bunch of 15 to 30-second snippets of those videos. The long-form audio, uh, you probably have less options in terms of audio, but you can certainly do pieces. Some people will do multi-parts. So if you do a 90-minute video, you might do three 30-minute podcasts. And long-form text, one big blog might become Two big blogs might become four emails, might become a whole bunch of um, uh, text based social posts. Don't know if anyone n- notices this, but um, quite often your text based posts uh, will actually get shared the most, uh, particularly on places like LinkedIn. Um, understanding how that works is pretty important, but uh, uh, you can turn it into you can turn that one blog into 20, 30 pieces of content if you really want to. You don't necessarily need to. This is what an actual process flow looks like. This is what we do. Uh, So source recording goes in at the top. Uh, We have essentially a producer, a content producer who watches all the way through, right? And while they watch all the way through, they're marking up the video. What um, quotes do I want to pull out? What two to three minute videos do i want to pull out what shorter snippets do i want to pull out all of the marking up the video for when does it happen the things that we want to pull out uh, and what parts do we want to cut etc that then gets sent on to our video editor who will essentially make the first full length youtube video and full audio file right the audio file will have a podcast intro on it the youtube video will not uh, which then flows down into the building out of all of the different pieces of video content. Uh, we actually convert our current um, YouTube videos into vertical videos as well, which is not perfectly ideal, but I don't have to make vertical video videos separately. so it works for us. Uh, just top and bottom is where we put then the overlay for the for the um, words. That then gets pushed through to a graphic designer who uh, makes all of the thumbnails, etc. for the social posts. It also, the opposite direction, goes to the copywriter who starts writing the blogs, the articles, the emails, all of those pieces. Comes back in one document at the end where the producer then looks over everything, does copy editing, watches it one last time, goes for approval, and then gets uploaded into a scheduling tool, right? That is essentially 28 pieces of content, which is a content strategy of one piece of content per day going out to your audience, right? That's what that process produces. Distribution. Uh, it's important to just decide where do your customers exist. Um, for us, we're going out through podcast platforms, YouTube, email, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. Uh we also post on Instagram and Facebook and we are about to start posting on TikTok as well. Right? And the reason we post on we'll post on TikTok is because we're already making vertical content. So it's literally no additional work to post it to TikTok as well, so may as well. Uh anybody that is watching this now or later, that wants to come and talk to us about uh, building a content engine, we are now seven months in officially doing this for our clients as well. Um, the results for us have been really, really great. Um, already building significant pipeline on the back of this on the back of this process. Uh, so if you want to come and talk to us about doing this for you, scan the QR code, and we can do so. All right. That is the main content piece. So now we are on to the fun stuff. The fun stuff being the Q&A. We have some uh, some live guests uh, who I would very much like to get their questions live from. I've got some, um, some sent in as well that I'll do at the end, uh, but whoever has a question, feel free to jump in and fire away. I know you always have a question, Nat, so hit me up. What do you got?
1: Okay, so my (laughs) questions are based around, um, I guess, more startup entrepreneurs, and so my questions are based around that. So uh, here we go. What are the most important aspects a new entrepreneur or business owner should focus on to effectively understand business and sales? So the reason I ask that question is that – Two years into my journey now, I think a lot of business owners who are at different stages are starting to ask me these same questions. So I thought I'd ask them here and get a professional to answer them <laughs> so I can send them over here to listen to the whole thing.
0: Oh, a professional. That's a little strong for me, Nat. Um, yeah, well,
1: <laughs> I don't, I'm only speaking the truth, mate.
0: Appreciate it. Um, so I, I think this is an interesting question because there's – there's, a lo- There's honestly a lot of answers to it. Um, I heard somebody say, actually, it was Dale Beaumont. I heard him say uh, a little while back, Dale Beaumont from Business Blueprint. Uh, he said, I once asked somebody, um, what's the one piece of advice? What's the one thing I should really focus on in business? What's the one piece of advice you would give Um in order to grow a business and the person responded to him, the best piece of advice I could ever give you is there is not one thing. (laughs) There are a shitload of things. There's so many things. Um, And trying to just focus on a few uh, can be relatively detrimental to an entrepreneur because the entrepreneur's job really is to be – the top of a big T, right? Um, Everybody in terms of their expertise will mostly either be uh, the top of the T or the bottom of the T. Some people are very narrow, uh, sorry, very shallow but but very broad in what they understand and some people are very deep, right? And so if you've started a business with an area of deep expertise, your job really now is to figure out how do I become the top of the T? Because if you're going to lead a business to significant growth, you're going to have to understand marketing and sales and how to develop products and how to survey customers and understand what they need. You're gonna have to be able to understand some some degree of marketing analytics. You're going to have to understand operations and supply chain logistics and contracts and renewals. And you're gonna have to understand them at least to some degree because it's really hard to manage people as you scale, right? It's really hard to manage people on things that you have no idea about. Um, And that first layer of management that you end up with are going to be people that are doing things, right? When you go up a level from that, well, now you're managing people who are managing people who are doing things. And so only those managers actually really need to know how to do the thing, right? But you have to have this broad understanding so that as you scale, you can still manage and you can still give guidance and you can still strategize because you understand how the things work at least to some degree. However, having said that, I'm going to completely contradict myself and say early early in the process, the most important two things to understand are how how to market and how to sell. Right? If you nobody goes into a business with ab- absolutely no idea how to do something or at least some people that know how to deliver a product, you're if you're already If you already have a business, you're already selling stuff, you at least have some idea of how the product works, right? Now, how many people can I get in front of and how many people can I convert to customers, right? So marketing and sales, I think, are the two most important things. If anyone wants to grow a business, that is where all of the growth comes from. I would just focus intensely on those two things. Marketing gives you scale. Sales gives you conversions, right? It's impossible to scale far if... All of your growth is built on sales. Like marketing has a far greater leverage, right? But sales is ultimately where the rubber hits the road. So you, you need both. Does that answer the question? I'm not sure if I answered it well.
1: I, I think you answered it well. I think I'd just like to add to that is that as as I was hearing you speak and um, – had the privilege to have some of your training in the past, I think maybe I would add is, like, clearly identify the what you actually want to achieve. So it's all well and good Mm. to be able to grow and scale a business, but what's the actual end game in mind? Like, for some business owners, it might be, I want a team of five so I can do this, and and that's their scalability. And I think um, understanding of, like, where do you want to take the business so you can implement those strategies before that, and I think... For me, like hearing you say that, I'm just like, oh, maybe that was me asking the question more than you know the other business owners that are coming to me. So, but
0: yeah. that
1: really puts it into perspective. Uh, in regards, I think to- your
0: answer is better than my answer, Nat, because it's so it's so important. Actually, if you don't have a destination, if you don't know what you're working towards, like what is the what is the point of all this? That is the starting point. What are we trying to do? And I'm not talking in terms of like what's our revenue goal, right? But where are we trying to go in terms of what's the mission here? Where are we mm. trying to get to in terms of what's the vision, right? Yeah. Um, because all of that stuff is, is super critical to, to being able to scale because you've got to give people something to buy into. Mm. Nobody, nobody that you hire will give a shit about whether you become a $50 million business. They do not care and they shouldn't care, right, because revenue is, is a bad goal, right? What's the point? I think that's mm. the, the first and most important thing and the most important thing to, to focus on. And as you scale, actually, it is the CEO's job to constantly be reminding people of what we're trying to do, what the yeah. mission is. Yeah. That's a great answer. Yep. Um,
1: well, thank you for stimulating that answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do we got next? Give me more questions. Jim. What do you got?
2: All right, I'm I'm actually going to throw a little bit of a curveball and change up the uh question that I sent you earlier. Uh after seeing your presentation, I, I was yes. thinking about the content cycle and the process you have set up and I'm wondering do you also within that process that you go through do you have a way that you consistently measure the results of what you're putting out there? Um, Mm. you know, to, to kind of, you're putting out a piece of content every day, uh, 28 days in the month, you know, pretty much every day you're putting out a piece of content, you know, the picture you showed with the 28, uh, pieces of content out of one recording. And, you know, that's a lot of opportunity to learn what's working. And then the next time, the, the next month you record your next video or, or podcast, you can kind of take those learnings and, and tweak and try new things and test and see how they work out. And I'm wondering, so I'll kind of throw that also into the context of measurement getting a little bit harder with things like GDPR and loss of data and Apple changing things on us with iOS 14.5 and kind of ITP and ATT and all those fun things. So.
0: Yeah, uh, I think this is like the question that, so many people in marketing are trying to answer. Um I think there's um so for us there's there's a relatively simple answer which is a an old answer and it's a relatively low tech answer which is that um we shifted to actually there's really two parts to it right we shifted to a um a self-reported attribution model um because The whole purpose of this content engine is to create demand which is obviously what i talked about at the start the point is to create demand so what we want to understand is where did the demand get created right where did where did they hear about us and so all of our pipeline now gets asked and there's a few ways you can do it um all of our pipeline now gets asked, where did you hear about us, right? And so one of the options in the drop down list is podcast. Um, but there's also things like networking groups, business networking groups, for example. There's referrals. There's lots of options that we don't often pick up from a digital tracking perspective. Um, and in doing so, Uh, We have identified that some of those channels are actually super important for us, are actually really high converting, really high quality lead sources for us. Um, And so that's probably one part. The other part is in order to do that, you really need to organize your tech in terms of batching. Your lead sources. You need to be able to understand that there is a difference between where did demand get created and where did it get captured, and so separating between um, where did they hear about us and what was the path they took to find us, because we still want to be able to measure, like how many people actually arrived through search, for example. Um, we still want to be able to measure that, and so nobody's ever going to say um, nobody's ever going to say that. Um, that they found you through AdWords, right? They will say they Googled you, right? But then which one was it? (laughs) Which one was it? Was it organic or was it an ad? And they're like, oh, I don't know. It was the, I don't remember. Nobody's paying attention to that. So they're not going to remember. So you want to be able to digitally track what channel they came through. You don't want to override that. And so having the two separate pieces to track between what was the path they took to get to us and what was the way that they found out about us uh, the self reported attribution piece is the the what was the way they found out about us um, there's lots of there's lots of data suggesting that you can ask that question in forms and it has almost no impact on um, on your conversion rates in forms. Um, it doesn't decrease conversion rate in forms. Who knows whether that plays out long-term, but there's lots of data coming out that suggests that's the case. So you can ask them up front. Some people suggest it's better to have a free text and then go back and align um, because you'll get more true answers rather than the drop-down. We're currently doing a drop-down, but... you know, we will be testing whether free text works better. Uh, But we also, the second they enter our sales pipeline and the second we have a sales conversation with them, whether it's a qualification one or further along, we have, it is a required field. We have to ask the question. Every time a salesperson speaks with them, we have to make sure that that field is is filled. If they've already filled it, we don't ask it again, but it is a required field. Every time something moves along in the sales stages, if it's not yet filled, it's a pop-up right can't move it along until we've filled that field which on all these things um i would say there's going to be some error right um are people going to remember where they heard about us correctly um uh sometimes a sa- is sometimes a salesperson going to put it in because it's a required field even they don't have the answer yes all of these things are true i don't think um i mean i i'd love uh your take on this jim um Like, I don't think they need to be perfect in order for them to be super helpful, right? Um, And and obviously, if we're we're getting it from the horse's mouth, uh, it might be a bit more accurate than if we're trying to track it in places we can't track.
2: Yeah, and I would say, you know, none of our data is perfectly accurate, even though we've been led to believe that for the past decade, like, oh, it's digital and we can track it. (laughs) Like, it's filled with so many flaws, and I've seen it all, like, it's not accurate. So one, one other thing about the, the self reported survey data is that even if it's not how they actually first found out about you, maybe they clicked on a paid ad the first time they ever interacted with you. But if they say the podcast was how they found out about you, that's what stuck with them, right? That's how they remember. That's what they remember mm. the most. So that is probably more valuable to know that than, Oh, they happened to click on this ad, but they don't even remember that they remember the podcast. So
0: yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that is an interesting way to think about it. It's not just where did they first hear about you. It's what was the most memorable place that they heard about you, um, and we get lots of lots of those. That are I would say one of the main ones aside from content is um, is referrals. That's coming up a lot more than it was before we were doing self-reported attribution, and so. Um, that's been really interesting to see as well we actually have it split out into two pieces which is like business community referral because we're trying to figure out like more specifically where they came from like the personal referrals i think st- stop scaling at a certain size of business and so i really want to understand like how many of them are like an individual person referring which is quite often clients or somebody we know versus we're getting referrals from within uh, a facebook community a linkedin community or an actual business networking community um and so that's another one for us as well but i, I like that point point. and uh the other i wonder how much you could also think of it in terms of if it is wrong Maybe that's just also where they personally hear about things, <laughs> right? And so, maybe you should be going there more often because that is the place that they're like, oh, I usually hear about these things in business networking communities. So, I'll write that. Um, I wonder if there's any validity to that, well, that or if that's <coughs> helpful at all. But That actually
3: segues uh, onto to the, one of the questions that I was going to have for you. Oh, yes. Which was like when you start, when you begin, uh, it's like omni-channel. But well, like it's just sp- spread far and wide, based off of an information set that we have that we're pretty sure our avatar is going to sit inside But then, after a certain point, when do you know, or when do you start to get an indication, or when do you think these start to get an indication of, okay, let's 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 narrow, let's chunk down into this particular avenue because we're starting to see like systematic results yield. Like I know that. Um, and it's a bit of an open-ended question, but when do you start to feel that you get that level of insight to then go, cool, mm. we now know that TikTok is going gangbusters, so let's double down here. Or like LinkedIn Groups is, is going really, really well, we can see here. Business um, business networking is, is performing well. Let's think of a, a cohesive strategy just to really leverage here. When do you think you start seeing that?
0: Um- this is this is actually kind of something that jim Jim and I recorded a podcast together yesterday by the way <laughs> um, and this is very much Jim's area of expertise. I'll give my uh amateur version uh of the answer and then maybe Jim you can give some extra insight too um to me, you have to be careful of focusing on the things that you can measure right. So, are you? Is it the only place? Is it the main place that you're getting results, or is it the main place that you're measuring? Um, Jim gave an amazing example yesterday of um, somebody in the dark trying to find their keys, right? And so they walk over and they've lost their keys, and they walk over and they look under the street lamp because that's where the light is. It's not necessarily where the keys are, (laughs) right? And I think that. That's so true in terms of what happens in in a lot of businesses is they're looking to extend on, on a strategy that they can measure, but they have to be m- more realistic about whether it's working, right? Whether it's actually developing pipeline, whether it's actually developing revenue. You know, a good example is lots of people running um, lead magnets, right? Clickbaity lead magnets that trick people into giving their email address and their phone number and then calling those people and those people entering the database and the generating pipeline and then converting it one (laughs) percent, right? Is that working? So what's the measure of working is probably an important piece. Is it the only thing you can measure? And if it's real, if it really is working, um, are you going to have to decrease other things in order to increase it? because actually i'll probably i'll throw to you on this a bit jim because the the different elements that you've been working on quite often interact with each other (laughs) and uh if you have got to turn something off in order to turn something up sometimes you ruin the mix what what would you say jim what's your version of this as a a proper expert
2: yeah so i I was actually gonna maybe push back a little bit on the premise that like when you're just starting out you're kind of doing everything, like spreading it all around and like trying to hit every single place that your, your avatar might be. Um, I would probably in, in most cases recommend you pick one or two channels and focus wholly on those until you have uh, you've proven them out and you've kind of, you, you take all of your effort and focus on those. Right. And then you can, you can measure at what point are you reaching this level of diminishing returns where an additional dollar in does not yield enough marginal um, output or, or revenue, whatever it might be to make it worth it. Right. And once you've kind of tapped out that channel, then you go to the next channel and explore that. And then after you've tapped that out, you go to the next channel and you kind of build out from there. Um, and as far as, you know, you mentioned like, how do you know if you've like kind of hit on one of these channels that it's you know, oh, maybe we need to double down in in TikTok or what it might be. Uh, you know, a couple of ways that that I always recommend and that we do with our clients is uh, through randomized controlled trials. So testing out, you know, let's let's run a test. Let's double our our uh, our spend in TikTok and and measure the results. Um, and then also, if you have something running in the background like a marketing mix model, that can also feed into you know you could have the the randomized controlled trial data feed into that and help kind of fine tune the the model to really show what's the ROI or the CPA of a particular channel.
0: Yeah. And I, I would just say like whenever whenever something's working, know what working means and know that it's actually working and and focus more on the actual revenue result that it's driving. Um, and I know you very much do this, Hugh, but um, there's a lot of businesses focus on, okay, this is working because it's driving a lot of pipeline, and leads and this is why leads is quite often a bad metric it's driving a lot of leads and the sales team are sitting there going the leads suck why do the leads suck well the leads suck maybe because you tricked them into downloading a piece of content and giving their email and uh it had nothing to do with wanting to actually buy a thing or solve a problem and so now They downloaded that template and you've got an SDR team that's calling them and saying, um, oh, hey, you know how you downloaded that piece of content? Maybe we want to talk to you, right? And so those are going to convert at a super low rate because the intent is incorrect, right? And so... What is the measure of working? Have we proven it out that it actually is generating revenue and positive pipeline and high converting scalable pipeline? Because to me, scalable pipeline is I don't want to have to hire a ton of expensive salespeople in order to sit there and try and convert 1% converting leads.
3: Yeah. yeah. it's one of, the, one of the things you see in the light is people conflate curiosity with consent. So when you have the lead mm. magnet like that, they come in and they're like, that's interesting enough for me to have a look at it, but it's not consent really to move into a sales conversation. But too often you see a lot of people do the, well, we, see it, we see it pretty systematic, right? Like you see a lot of, um, you know, chuck your details in here, get this thing. This thing has little or no value to actual person, but they're curious enough to do it. Right. And then, then you have this, artificially inflated front end pipe and they're like yeah fantastic we've got tons of volume in there because we've measured the wrong thing and I'm a big big advocate for thinking okay well the, the measurement there shouldn't necessarily be the lead number but it should be the lead value like what does that lead equate to in secured revenue in terms of evaluation and then once you've shifted that slightly the marketing on the or the the lead generators and the marketers are slightly more on the hook for revenue attribution because then you can have them mm. go, well, we know that if you have a pot of this much and it's, it sits in here as an average, but then we can move it through, then you're also the target for like, driving revenue. value, Not just say, we've given you 100 leads this month. Because then yep. it, it doesn't necessarily work. So, yeah.
0: That's- yeah. Where's the, where's the where's the crossover between marketing and sales? Because to me, it's like, um, and and I got this concept from a guy named Chris Walker from a company called Refine Labs. And this is very much what we've implemented for ourselves. Where's the crossover between sales and marketing where there's some shared responsibility? And for me, it's um, if I'm going to build a sales team and salespeople are not cheap, right? (laughs) Salespeople are not cheap. I'm going to build a sales team. What is the volume of pipeline at a certain conversion percentage where it makes sense that I really want a sales team to be focusing on it, right? And to me, that's probably somewhere north of 25% conversion rate, right? For, a, for like an onshore, expensive, closing, account executive type salesperson, I don't really want them talking and dealing with anybody that's less than 25% conversion, right? I might have a qualification team that starts talking to people maybe from a stage in the process that's 5% plus, Right and qualifies out develops moves them into that stage. You know, for anyone using business to, uh, BDR SDR type teams appointment setters. Um, although I prefer rather than appointment setters, to me they're qualifiers. Right, that's the qualification process. Is that section in the middle? Um, but so the marketing goal then then becomes, I'm, if if my target is X. I need to deliver enough pipeline to that stage in the sales process from which we convert 25%, right? And then if that if that mark moves, if that part, part of the sales process now becomes 15% because the lead quality has gone down, we will be able to see that. And it'll stop being sales teams going, um, the leads suck. We're just getting sent junk leads, you know? I, I say this all the time, but if your sales team is saying to you the leads suck and they would rather cold call someone than call your leads, I'm, I promise you the leads, leads suck.
3: The leads suck. Yeah.
0: <laughs> sales people take the path of least resistance. If yeah. they're not calling the marketing leads, the marketing leads suck. I absolutely guarantee it. If the marketing leads are good, they're fighting each other for them. And they're complaining, why don't I get more of the leads? Why do they get all of those leads? Why don't I get any of the ones from Australia? Da, da, da. If they're fighting over the leads, your leads are good. If they're avoiding them and they're not getting called, your leads suck. Almost all the time. So where's that, where's that crossover point? At what point does it become worthwhile having a salesperson involved? And then measure the marketing team on that, right? X amount of pipeline to that stage in the, in the sales process means we can hit our target, we can hit our goal. And so measure them on that, start to, to roll them over between each other. So they're not, it's not, I've got to deliver this amount of leads and I've got to deliver this amount of sales because they just end up butting heads and working against each other. percent. And, and marketing stops focusing on building pipeline. Actually, like we've started talking about in our team, a really good way to, to get your marketing team thinking is, um, what if you didn't have a sales team? Market as if you didn't have a sales team. What if the only way that we could make deals, like we're an e-commerce store, is that they had to arrive on the website ready to buy and you were going to put price in front of them and they had to go purchase, right? You're not allowed to trick them into being leads. You're trying to actually get them to transact, except when they arrive, we're going to book them in with a salesperson, right? But from a mentality perspective, what if there was no sales team? Mark it like that especially in B2B because B2B marketers have got away with it for so many years of just generating all these event leads and whatever that do nothing they need to deliver actual pipeline they need to be delivering pipeline that's ready to buy and sorry I'm going to go one more one more step with this which is we really need leaders in businesses to stop trying to make it hard for sales teams right I hear this all the time Well, we're paying them commissions, we're doing all this. I want them to work on the difficult stuff, right? Their job is to sell to people that didn't necessarily want it. No, your job is to need, and now apologies to the sales teams around the world, your job is to need the least amount of salespeople possible, right, to create efficiency. The least amount of salespeople possible as you scale. Right. And so you want them working on the highest converting stuff. And you know what? If a customer comes through and they just literally take an order, you're winning. You're not losing with your sales team. You're winning. That is the perfect place to be. Oh, I hear someone say, All our sales team are order takers. I'm like, Are they taking a lot of orders? And they're like, Yes. I'm like, Awesome. You're where everybody wishes they were.
3: It's (laughs) a a really good problem to to have. Like, it's the, (laughs) uh, and, and this is the thing that kind of drives me a little bit bonkers. They go, yeah, the, you know, they're they're just transacting. It's like even that takes skill. Even yeah, that, that it does. pivotal moment of the process, you have to have the right salesperson on it because you are talking about a transaction, money is involved. Yeah, and certainty, you cannot,
0: belief, trust, all that stuff,
3: all of it, and if you cannot articulate that, and if you cannot guide somebody through that critical moment of the process the right way, doesn't matter how many leads they give you, you are gonna you are gonna drop the ball every single time. So even it's the transactional so true. piece has to be done has to be done right it drives me bonkers it, it literally just not aggressively nodding as you were going through that I was like yep yeah, yep yeah, yep yeah. all of that it drives me mad because <laughs> so they're like here's a ton of leads and you're like awesome are they ready to go probably in about 18 months they'll be good it was like fantastic so why are they in the sales <laughs> pipeline right now <laughs>
0: isn't that, and isn't like, oh, that marketing's it's a lead. job then
3: <laughs> it's like it's a lead no it's not I filled it's in a form a yeah <laughs> they filled
0: in a form. They must be ready. That's <laughs> yeah, intent. Fantastic. Filling in a yeah. form is intent. Yeah. For what, though? Yeah. For what? Um, yeah. I think that comes back to the point around, um, around measurement as well, not just marketing measurement but sales measurement. Yeah. Um, and having really good appropriate goals for what you want to achieve, right? Um, having good KPIs for sales teams that aren't just about converting because if you make the goal about conversions and deals, people will find ways to make it happen that aren't necessarily a great customer experience. Whereas if you define their goals more around how easy it is to flow through the process, are we hitting the right marks? Are we making it easy yeah. for people to buy from us? Are they having a great experience in terms of how they understand the product and how it solves their problem and how they get handed over and the great uh, the level of notes and the level of detail in the handover so that the person who's then going to onboard them understands it? Like all of that stuff, if you're measuring that stuff- um, and having them focus on helping people, actually, you tend to get better sales conversions anyway.
3: Hundred percent. Like, in, and this is um, this ties into—it's a, a conversation that I was having with someone yesterday. They were trying to work out. This is a bit of a rabbit hole, but they were trying to work out how to structure pay for their salesperson, and mm. um, that's just one—that's one element of the actual process as a whole like it's all synergistic like it all ties into each other because and this is going to probably annoy a few salespeople that are out there but salespeople are inherently quite lazy like they're going to go they're going to go with the like you said the path of least resistance so we have got to make sure that the path of least resistance is is the right way for the for the customer right for the for the person to go through the journey and when you factor in pay if you incentivize you know, people getting started or new clients coming on board or anything like that, then ultimately they're gonna they're gonna put that need first and then they're going to shoehorn people that into something that probably shouldn't be there. So then mm. you take a step back, you look at the salary component of it, you go, you should pay a salesperson. First of all, they are expensive, absolutely. You've be the most highest paid people in the company typically. Um, But you should pay them in a sweet spot. It's the Goldilocks principle. You don't want to underpay them because then what they'll do is they'll shoehorn people into sales that shouldn't be in there. Then you have massive detractors and unhappy customers and people that are causing problems down the line. You shouldn't overpay them so that there isn't an incentive to actually transact because you do need that as a commission component. It's just right. You want to make sure that everything is covered. They're in a place of comfort, but there is something to be working towards. Like it's mm. just kind of sitting in that, in that happy middle ground. Um, you do that and then you create, you create a journey, you create a process that is enjoyable, that, 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 that they enjoy doing and the customer and the person enjoys going through. And you genuinely have a, a something that is going to solve an awesome problem and you can just communicate that really simply. Then people get to the end of it and they thank you for, for going through it. They're like, this is the best. This is awesome. Yep. like, and I'm super excited like this is the best outcome and you're like get done that. like, that's the sure that's the most sign part of that. a great sales process yeah.
0: is when Cons- your customers so- are regularly thanking you at the end of the sales process best best sign you've got a great sales process and great sales people yeah. um, when they Cons- uh, when people transact and then leave reviews and name the sales people specifically also another great sign and something that should be massively celebrated, right? Because it shows yep. that the that the salesperson gave them a great experience through the process, not just tried to force them into it. I promise you the salespeople that are that are pressuring people in and over-promising and doing all those things, they don't get mentioned in reviews. <laughs> they don't get mentioned in reviews. They're the ones where the person gets in and has a bit of buyer's remorse and they're like, oh, actually, can I cancel and can I do it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Are you with well, us, JP? Actually, have you, got a, have you got a... Oh. Product review. Sorry, you go, Hugh.
3: No, no, no. No, all good.
4: All good. Let's get JP. JP, have
0: you, got a, have you got a question?
4: Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes, we got you. Better? Yeah. Um, I resonate with a lot of stuff I've said before. Um, Hugh made a lot of really good points. I think on the point that you made a, a while back, like in my mind, curiosity always comes before consent. And that that probably speaks to a clash that happens in like all of the sales process that like this this lead is is then put like for much further beyond beyond where they should be um so yeah that was that's my question to you ben i think like a lot of like the clash that happens in general in businesses is that business wants things to move much faster than they actually can and like is probably gonna take 12 months Cause, you know that person needs to be educated on a technology they have no idea about and then they need to understand the roi and then a whole bunch of stuff needs to happen along the way and the business kind of wants it to happen in six mm. and that, that just creates so many problems so how how do you think about value add throughout long sales processes um do you think about this like map this out on a whiteboard have a piece structured for every step of the way and and do it that way or do you think about it differently? Is it is it very situational and contextual to the type of person you're selling to? But yeah, I'd love to get your take on it.
0: Yep. Um, this. Yep. This is, I think, uh, actually a difficult question to answer because it is kind of contextual. I think with, with anybody in any sales process, the most important place to start is like, what's the problem that we're solving and who are we trying to solve it for? You know, we talked earlier about um, uh, developing avatars, you know, your key customer profiles in relation to marketing. I think that those are an essential for businesses, not just for marketing, but for sales as well, because we have to understand where they're at in their journey. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are selling solutions to problems that people don't even know they have. And so you can't sell someone a solution for a problem they don't know they have. Who's got the budget for it? Who's responsible for it? They don't even know they've got it, right? So in that in that case, you're talking about a multiple-step educational sales process. You have to educate them and sell them on the problem before you can even sell the solution. So um, once you're aware of where your customers predominantly sit in their kind of adoption cycle, the stages of awareness. Are they aware of the problem? Are they aware of the solution? Are they shortlisting? Like, where are they at? You can start to build a bit of a plan for them. Um, I think that all of this though, whilst fundamentally true, gets in the way of a lot of sales and marketing teams, right? I think that knowing that we need to have these plans for people individualized personalized plans um, has led many businesses to significantly overcomplicate what they're trying to do right and it's like if we're not doing all of it then we may as well not do any of it and so for me it's like what's the what's the minimum viable product version of this customer journey, right? We know we've got a heap of customers that have no idea what the problem is yet. Okay, so that is going to be essential. How are we going to educate them on the problem? Are we going to go to events? Are we going to run a podcast? Are we going to do a bunch of white papers? What's the content? What's the way that we're going to sell them on the problem? First and foremost, that should not be the sales team's job, right? That is... Too far. That is too far up the funnel, right? But what are those those small incremental pieces that are super important? It's like the Pareto principle, right? What's the twenty percent of things we can do that are going to get us eighty percent of the way and simplify for them? How are we going to sell them on the problem? How are we then going to bring them into a pipeline from an individualized, um, you know, personalized? Um, profile perspective so if i know that uh maybe one of my profiles is in government for example i'm going to need a different way in order to entice them along to have a conversation about a solution than somebody that's from a construction business for example um, and so i think once you get pu- once you get to the point of um we're doing a good job of of teaching them about the problem and selling them on the problem, then how do I individualize for my three, four individual avatars and maybe start with one, (laughs) right? Depending on how big or small you are. If you're a small business, just pick a niche, pick one and go, here's how I'm selling the problem. Here's exactly who I'm trying to sell to. And here's a couple of channels that I can go after. And then from a sales process perspective, how do I develop them along uh, it 's mostly going to have to be that i 've got to get them in my database and i 've got to i 've got to make sure that they are consuming my content, but i don 't want to force them out of that I want them to self opt in and so giving them lots of opportunities um, not necessarily always calls to action but lots of opportunities and really easy ways to get in touch with you and I think for most businesses that core piece. For how you then allow them to opt in is mostly going to be your website. Um, I don't know how good of an answer that is. I, I would actually like. I would actually like maybe take a step back from that and say, if you really know the problem that you want to solve, and you develop great content for how you want to solve it, people will mostly nurture themselves, right? If you if you build a really good content engine around how you're going to solve a problem and you talk to customers challenges and you talk to their journey and you um you can articulate their world better than they've ever heard it articulated before and they start to feel that connection they will largely nurture themselves and i think that's where something like a podcast a vlog any of these things become hugely valuable because you don't necessarily have to move them. They'll follow you along the journey and they'll connect to the pieces of content that are at their part of the journey. You just have to make sure you div- you're, you're building content that hits each of those stages. Does that answer the question? I think you'd probably have a really good answer for this as well, JP.
4: I oh, think get a great answer, mate. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, uh, I'm just going to quickly answer two questions that I got sent in uh, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, unless anybody's got another one after that. Uh, So I got a question in from a friend of ours, JP, uh, Mr. Jack Waddell, would you believe? Uh, He said, what's the best way to build a sales process that can be scaled? Um, This is in itself uh, somewhere in the vicinity of... 50 books to read and a whole bunch of courses to attend (laughs) but um the simple answer for me is that um look sequence is really important and so pick a sales process that is out there and learn it right and that might be um spin selling by neil rackham it might be the Pitch Anything model from Oren Claff. It might be Gap Selling from Keegan. There's a hundred of these things that give a good clear, like what's the series that we should go through. I think um, my absolute favourite is the Reverse Selling Method uh, from a good friend of of mine, uh, Mr. Pete Lakovich. Uh can attest to that is a very good way to go about selling Um, but sequence is really important knowing in which order should I do things is I think important and so pick a methodology and just by picking one and following it I promise all of them work (laughs) they all work to some degree (laughs) right just having a good order and a good sequence um, is is the start the second thing is Write it out, document it. And don't document the finished product, document draft number one, 1.0, right? What do I think this could be like? And then do it in exactly that order, right? Write a script for it and exactly follow that script yourself and test it because you'll start to feel where does it work and where does it not work? And then you make the 1.1 and the 1.2 and the 1.3 and now we're version two. It is a constantly evolving thing, your sales process. And if you approach it that way, if you go, I'm never going to make a sales process that's the same forever, and you get that mindset in place, and it's a constantly developing thing, you will always see improvements in your conversion, but you will also always continue to adapt to your customers, right? Because the way they buy changes, the way the market is responding to different Uh, Challenges their understanding and their education around problems and solutions changes. And so if you treat it as a constantly evolving um, document and process, you'll find that you adapt as you go. But learn a process that's out there. It doesn't matter which one, just pick one. Challenger methodology, whatever. Anybody got any others? Um, There's hundreds. But pick one. Write it down. Write down your version of it in terms of the sequence of steps make a script based on those sequence of steps and then practice with it and try it and update it right uh i think that's the the best advice i can give i can do a whole session around what should that sequence be what's the sequence that i use um but that's not for this one (laughs) and uh and that's a very long that's a very long workshop i know some people here have been in those workshops um that's a very long one, but it, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's my one. doesn't matter whether it's Neil Rackham's one. It doesn't matter whether it's Oren Klaff's one or Peter Lakovich's one. Pick one, document it, execute it, adjust it. That's the best advice I can give around sales process. Uh, this is a, I know this is an area of expertise for both you, Hugh, and JP. Anything you'd add on to that? I think you nailed know it.
3: That- like just just start. Like just start. It's never yeah. it's never perfect out of the gate. It doesn't yeah. exist. The perfect sales process is a fable. It's a myth. Like it's a continuous cycle of improvement that you get insight from from your sales team. They'll they will tell you very quickly what's done, like in your sales process. Like they're gonna ver- yep. verbalize that like
0: immediately. They might and not tell you verbally, they just stop doing it.
3: Yeah, <laughs> well yeah, they just they they just go and revolt. Like, this is just mass <laughs> mass exodus, and they're like, nah, "I'm not doing this anymore." Um, yeah, but no, that's that's exactly it. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter. I think people obsess, um, quite severely, over like what what's the best one for me, or like how like which one should I use? It doesn't exactly what you said. Doesn't matter. Pick one, start with it, refine it, optimize it, practice it. Just keep going through the motions, and it will get better. It will get better. It will get better, and don't be afraid to to tweak it. But where there's massive risk is if you start thrashing, if you start mm. fundamentally changing everything, because yep. you're like, oh, it's not working. Well, it's not mm. working because you've only been doing it for two minutes, first of all. Secondly, like just change one little thing and then see how that goes. Otherwise, if you change a whole ton of stuff, you've got no idea what was the, what was the fulcrum, like what actually like moved it forward. But yep. um, I couldn't, I couldn't have put it better. Like, you know, I think that's bang on. Yeah.
0: I think that extra piece you added there is really critical, because uh, I do see a lot of people build a sales process and try and use it, and it's not getting the results they want, and then they throw it out the window and try something else. They they never, it, it's never perfect first time. Oh man, sometimes when I have built a new sales process, and I use it for my, I always test it for myself, and I use it for the first time. I get off the phone with someone, and I'm just like get that feeling in my stomach like I want to vomit like that was so disgusting that was gross (laughs) I hated every second of that Uh, but you always learn something from it like oh as the words were coming out of my mouth it just felt felt gross Um, what about you JP have you got anything else to add to that?
4: Um, yeah two quick things first is like I think success with the sales process is when you notice like your reps start talking about things in the vocabulary of the sales process. Mm.
2: Yep.
4: Like, I think that's a big, a big thing when like the, the culture gets around this and it's like, yeah, so yeah this has happened. They're qualified because X has happened and everyone can agree to the same terms. And, mm. and that, that actually helps your business a lot because then you're like, we're all on the same page. Um, the second thing is like with, with like selling large software deals, I think what helps a lot that I, only few people do is after you, you have advocates um you should definitely do a session with them that you you map with them what their buying decision was and go like You know like tell me how you decided to buy us and um and then you show them your sales process they'll they'll just laugh you out the room they'll be like you know this is this is ridiculous, that's so different to what we actually do.' Uh, so the two are never gonna be perfectly aligned, but th- there'll probably be a few adjustments that you'll get from them they'll tell you things like, "Oh, we did that process and you probably haven't you don't have a uh an equivalent step in your sales process that mm. you could add or one that you could remove um so yeah, talk to your buyers about how they bought and try and align it to your sales process is is a useful step that some people make
0: i think that's so that's so important. Don't build a sales process based on how you want to sell, build a sales process based on how your customers buy and not necessarily always how they want to buy, but how they do buy. Sometimes there is a gap even in their understanding of how they buy, but I totally agree with you. Like understanding that, talking to your customers, I've never shown a customer my sales process before. Uh, That sounds incredibly scary, but I definitely am going to try that now um i think that's the ultimate test isn't it right and that's the ultimate test of what's the purpose of the sales process because if you wouldn't put your sales process in front of your customer are you doing stuff that's maybe a bit cringy (laughs) like why wouldn't you show them i had someone say to me the other day um you know that they don't like you know the old school type sales floors you know with with boards with with customer deals and things all over it. Um, And their point was like, would you want your customer to walk your sales floor? And if you wouldn't, it's probably not a sales floor that's built to help your customers, (laughs) right? And that should be the ultimate goal of selling is to help them. And I think that piece around like, if you wouldn't show your sales process to your customer, is it designed to help them? Or is it designed to convince them to buy something they don't necessarily need? definitely going to try that one out um okay i've got one more question in here from a linda l i do know a linda l but i don't have a surname so <laughs> i won't shout her out in case it's not her um well, i think we've answered this a little bit how do you get your sales team to call your leads <laughs> this is a great question um And the answer is usually get better leads Um, if the sales team aren't calling them. Okay, now there's a, a version of this where actually the leads aren't the problem and it's a timing problem. So if the question is, how do you get your sales team to call your leads on time? I think that's a different question. It's a really important one and it's one that a lot of people get wrong. Timing is everything, speed to action is everything. If you, have, if you are generating active inbound inquiries, people with unresolved questions, right? How does this work? How much does this cost? How do I buy this? If they're out really asking like buying questions and they're unresolved queries, I can guarantee that you're probably not the only person that they're asking them to, right? Um, you know, unless they've decided, I'm buying HubSpot and now I'm trying to figure out how. That's a bit different, but for a lot of businesses, They're just trying to find a solution, you know, for us with outsourcing. If they come to us asking active, unanswered questions, you have to answer the question really quickly. Whoever answers first, especially in B2B decision-making, the first person to answer the question will win the deal more than 50% of the time, right? And if you're in, let's say... um, you're in the world of construction. If you're an electrician or something like that, it's not how quickly you answer their query. It's how quickly you get them a quote, right? But ultimately, it's how quickly do they get certainty around what the next step is and whether they want to go ahead? Do they have the information in order to be able to proceed? Um, And so if the question is ultimately, how do I get them to call them faster? (laughs) How do I get them to prioritize? I think that answer is really simple. It's not always easy because there's resource allocations involved. I think most businesses that have an inbound lead strategy need to have an inbound salesperson. right? And that won't necessarily always be a high paid salesperson. Sometimes you might have somebody offshore answering those leads. Sometimes you might have a receptionist that answers those inbound queries. Right, lots and lots of, of electricians and the like have somebody in the office where somebody calls in and or emails in and asks a question. Um, if you can get back to them within, uh, and I'll set some KPIs for people here. It's better if it's even less than this, but if you can get back to them and give them have them an answer within an hour, you're probably ahead of most of your competition. Um, Where you need to do a quote, where you might need to do a site visit or something like that, you need to get the booking in, but you need to get the quote done super fast, within a day, within two days max, because people don't trust that they're actually going to get quotes from tradespeople, as an example. And so they won't stop asking for people to come around and quote them until they've got a quote in their hands. But most of the time, whoever gives them the quote first wins. And this applies to lots and lots and lots of different types of businesses. So split it out Who is gonna take the inbound queries that is always available to take them, right? And if you can manage it, if you've got customers all over the world in your 24-hour time zones and you can manage it, have people in 24-hour time zones, right? (laughs) Cover the whole thing because if you can answer the query quickly, if you can get them their quote, you can get them their proposal, their pricing, their whatever, if you're first and you're fast, you will win most of the time. Imagine you could just do that and that meant you had a 50% conversion rate, right? Be fast, be first. Uh, So if that's the question, that's my answer. (laughs) Uh, I can see Hugh nodding away. I know this is something you help people to do. Um, If the question is, how do I get them to call them because they refuse to call the leads? It's what we said before the leads are probably actually terrible and you need to do something about lead quality. Anyone got anything to add to that? I think you nailed it. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, in that case, we will wrap up. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Glad everyone could come along and I had some friendly faces to ask me some questions on the first live. Uh, The episode will be out sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, But yeah. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate everybody jumping on and asking questions and supporting.
1: Awesome, Ben. Thanks, mate.
0: Thanks, everyone.